0: From MGMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams.
1: We sometimes just want the noise and the chaos to stop. So we put a band-aid on the sucking chest wound and we hope that it gets better on its own. It will not.
0: That's Mary Kelly talking about diffusing difficult workplace situations. We'll hear more from Mary on her career as a Navy commander, the art of accountability, and how to thrive in today's world of healthcare leadership. But first, a word from our sponsors. Staffing a medical practice is no easy task, but it can be with the help of MGMA's Simple Guide to Hiring series. Christine Kalish, Penny Crow, and Sharon Jinchansky have teamed up on seven titles, all aimed to assist you in recruiting, hiring, and retaining the right staff for your practice. To purchase or preview any selections in the Simple Guide to Hiring series, visit mgma.com hiring. Are you a healthcare professional who always has the bottom line in mind? Then you're not alone. Join others just like you at MGMA 20, the Financial Conference, March 5th through the 7th in Nashville, Tennessee. This industry-leading conference is designed to arm medical professionals with the education and tools needed to run a more profitable and efficient practice. Whether you're a CFO, accountant, physician, consultant, or other related position, the Music City is where you'll want to be this spring. To learn more, visit the events page at mgma.com. If there's one place that teaches the ability to motivate and lead better than most, it's the military. No matter the branch, military veterans regularly deal with high-stress environments, on-the-spot problem-solving, and constant technological advancements not entirely unlike the average healthcare professional. Today's guest, Mary Kelly, has experienced the best of both military life and a career as an author, keynote speaker, and leadership expert. In speaking with many national and state MGMA members, Mary understands the importance of the change management process, helping practice managers and healthcare leaders embrace change in an industry that's always evolving. Mary, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for letting me be here. This is great.
0: Yeah, Now We were talking offline before, uh, before recording that you're a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. You also have just a ton of people. It seems like it's a prerequisite in your family. I just wanted to ask you about that, this military background for all of you, how this came about, and uh, what the military has meant to you in your life.
1: Thanks for asking. So my family is extremely patriotic, and we have a long lineage of people who served in all branches of the service. And my older brother went to the Naval Academy, and when he went, I thought, oh, there's no way I could possibly do that, that's just crazy. And also they tell you what to do, which I don't really like, and you wear funny clothes, which I also don't like. <laughs> and then and then I saw it, and it was different from what I thought it was. And it provided people a purpose and a mission beyond themselves and that, when I was 16 years old, meant a lot. I wanted the opportunity to serve. I didn't really know what that meant. But the military academies, Army, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, we've also got a Merchant Marine Academy, a lot of people don't know about. They all only ask that you try the first two years. And then, if you don't like it, the first two years, you can leave. And they pay tuition, they, you know, all that. And then, after those first two years, you're committed to service afterwards. And that's about a five-year commitment. It can be longer if you're a pilot. But the whole idea was a mission and a vision beyond yourself, and surrounded by like-minded people.
0: Hmm. Yeah. As a kid, my my uh, connection to the Navy was Roger, Roger Staubach. He was my hero growing up as a as a kid. He was a quarterback of the Cowboys, and I I always would uh, ponder what would have happened if he hadn't had to go serve for uh, four years or so after graduating before he could join the Cowboys so have you ever had a chance to meet him or interact I have, with him
1: um, so it's funny that you mentioned Roger Dodger of course I went to high school with his two daughters we went to the same school and when they would come up to visit you know go to football games and stuff they would stay with me in Bancroft Hall and uh, Jennifer his uh, one of his daughters, is my council person in Dallas County?
0: Wow, so that's pretty cool. That's amazing! Oh, mm-hmm. small world, small world, very small world. Yeah, going back to your uh, your uh, experience in the Navy, what what is your most meaningful uh, memory of that time?
1: Well, I was very fortunate. I, I was on active duty for over twenty five years, and. In that 25 years, I had a variety of different jobs. So I started out as an intelligence officer, which is why I'm still a research, a research hound now. I love to research things, especially for my audiences, and sometimes it gets me into trouble because I will spend so much time researching that um, you know I'll stay up till three o'clock in the morning before an event, which it gets me into trouble. <laughs> but I was one of my jobs was I was a chief of police. And I was a chief of police, not because I had a variety of law enforcement experience, I had some, but because it was a leadership position and they had fired the last nine out of 10 people in that job. So when I was brought in, um, there were significant leadership challenges. And when my people with badges and guns would do something naughty and it was significant, I would pull their weapon and pull their badge. Mm -hmm. And my boss at the time, After I mean, I had people doing naughty things. Like, you cannot pop positive for drugs and carry a gun. It's a bad idea. So And there were some other naughty things. And my boss at the time said, you know, if you keep doing this, you're not going to have much of a force left. And I told him, I said, if my people don't understand that there's consequences for bad behavior, I'm going to have worse problems than that. And, you know, that was – I mean, I was trying to walk the talk and all that. I mean, of course, I was terrified that that was actually going to happen. But – the issue is many people today in business are so worried about the war on talent that they are not holding people accountable for their behavior. And they're saying and they're making excuses for their people. Oh well, they're young. Oh well, they're old. Oh well, they've been here a long time. I mean, it doesn't matter. People make excuses for bad behavior when they don't want to confront it. And that was one of those things that as a very young officer, I had to learn really early in the Navy.
0: Mhm. It, it does, it's it's interesting that you brought that topic up because it does seem that in our past history, whether we're talking about businesses, whether we're talking about the entertainment industry, politics, it doesn't really matter when people in leadership positions kind of get caught um, in something, uh, naughty behavior, as you were putting it, um, and they're not transparent about it. They don't just own up to it, that it seems like it makes the act even worse or the punishment even worse. And what are your thoughts on that?
1: So in One of my books called Why Leaders Fail and the Seven Prescriptions for Leadership Success, which has nothing to do specifically with the medical community, but it turned out rather well for me. We found that in surveying over 100,000 employees, we found that when people's bosses made a mistake, they were wildly forgiving. As long as their boss walked in and said, look, here's what happened. I screwed up. Um, This is what I'm going to do to try to not do that again. And here's where I think I started to go wrong and what happened. That if you apologize, people will forgive you. But if you try to hide it, don't own up to it, uh, try to cover it up, that's when people start to get cranky. And that is also chapter two of that book is when we lose trust in politics or the workplace or even in our personal relationships. When you come clean on things that builds trust. And if you can get through that, that's even better. So this idea of honesty, you would think that the military, well, we kind of have to do that. We have to trust each other. When you're launching planes off a carrier deck, or you're trying to you know, land in a tiny airfield in the middle of nowhere, or you're trying to do an operation in the middle of the ocean, you're the, your team on your ship are the only people there. You really have to trust each other. And if you've done things in the past that make your team not trust you, that's going to get in the way. And here's what was so interesting, Daniel, was many leaders do things that are naughty. But in some cases, what they've their actions are perceived as being wrong, even if they're not. So we have to manage the perceptions as well as the reality.
0: Mm-hmm. In your book or in your other research, do you get into the behavioral reasons? I mean, what's going on in somebody's brain that tends to send them in that direction to either deflect or just not own up to it. Um, tell us well, about I think that. We're, yeah, go yeah, ahead. I think,
1: we're na- I think we're actually a nation right now of people who um, have learned that they don't have to be accountable for their own bad behavior. If you look at the news, look at what gets exalted in the news, bad behavior. Look at role models who are sports players or Hollywood stars. And when they, when they came out and go, oh yes, I've had this terrible cocaine problem, everybody says, oh poor you, that's so brave of you to come out. Well, wait a second. You've been breaking the law for 20 years. Why are you not in jail? You know, that's kind of that cop mentality. And yet we go, oh, yay, good for you. Oh, that must be so hard. And we make excuses Mm -hmm. for other people, again. And I'm a big fan of there's reasons and there's excuses. So if your reason for not uh, coming into work this morning was because Somebody rear-ended you. Okay, that's a pretty good reason. But if you're habitually late and every day there's just another excuse then that's an excuse. So we have to make sure that when we're holding people accountable that we consider the situation, but we also have to make sure that we you know we are mindful of the difference between an excuse and a reason. And part of the one of the exercises I do with some of my teams is I ask my leaders to talk to their teams and say, "You know what happens when people don't hold other people accountable. When your leaders don't hold you accountable, what happens? What happens on the team? And then they come up with all of these negative things that happen when they're not held accountable and all of a sudden they go, oh, and then the light bulb comes on and then they they start to think more like a team. Uh, the next book that I'm working on is called Transforming Talent into Teams. And it's kind of the same thing, that we are often rewarded as individuals and not for Helping other people, working with other people, collaborating with other people, and as a result of that, of that reward for being an individual or even not good behavior, we don't work very well with other people, and this is a problem in businesses today.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, give us a sneak peek about that book then that you're working on or that will be coming out soon. What's a uh, what's an interesting takeaway you could give us uh, before it's published?
1: So thanks for asking about that. It's kind of exciting because many of my more seasoned leaders think they are doing a great job with leadership, and many of them are not. That currently over 70% of workers under the age of 40 are currently looking for another job, whether casually or not so casually. And people say, oh, that's just terrible. Well, that's just that generation. We love to, again, make excuses based on things. But if you look at the entire workforce, including are under 65 crowd, 44% of them are also currently looking for their next opportunity. So we have to not not just um, slough off our own bad leadership and, and make an excuse for it. We have to be better leaders now than we had to be 10 and 20 years ago. And many leaders simply have not acknowledged the fact that the rules have changed, the game has changed, and to win in business and winning in business is not gouging the other person. It's doing a great job for the people you serve and your employees. In order to do that, leadership is harder than it used to be. So in transforming talent into teams, I'm working again with my co-author on the Why Leaders Fail book, his name is Peter Stark, because he's brilliant and he pushes me to be better and hopefully I do the same for him. But we have it sectioned off into three main categories and it's how to build a team, how to lead a team, and then how to continue the winning streak of your team. So what do you do if you go into a situation and the team is dysfunctional. And in every chapter, we've got a summary, actionable takeaways, and then very specific resources. Hey, here's a team exercise. Hey, look at this, or work through this one page, and everything's just one page. So it is a book and a workbook, and there's thought exercises, and and real tangible takeaways that our leaders can use to build the right team.
0: Mm -hmm. As a leadership expert, it's clear that you're talking about collaboration and teamwork. And at MGMA, we've noticed in our education that we've really begun to integrate that with collaborative efforts as well. So it's not just a didactic experience with someone standing at a lectern Lecturing for an hour—it's mm-hmm. getting really interactive. And when did that begin to turn? How long has that been in fashion, and why do you think we're moving in that direction now?
1: That's that's a great question. Yes, I, I think you're absolutely right. I am loving my MGMA's who allow me to go in for a longer period of time instead of just the keynote. I get um, there's some MGMA's who gave me three two-hour sessions in an entire day. So we can really do some deep dives. We do interactive things. I have a series, what I call a series of business and leadership success plans. And they're labeled the five-minute plan series. Um, I've got about 70 of them. The top 52 are coming out in a book here in January as well. And I have shared these with all of the MG- MGMA chapters I've worked with uh, as an interactivity. So for example, there's a feedback form. So if you've got an issue with an employee, we can work through some of those questions. There's an employee engagement form, and we work some of those. In some cases, we work through the leadership development form. You know, How do you develop your own leadership so that you're better on, on your team? There's a teamwork form. There's a focus form. Some of my leaders say their people are struggling to focus at work. Well, not exactly surprising in that we're stimulated all the time from our phone. You can watch TV. You can watch other people's TVs on their phone. There's TVs in waiting rooms. Everybody's got their earbuds in. And it's not a surprise that we are overly stimulated to the point where people get up. I see people in a restaurant. They're getting up to go to the bathroom and they take their phones with them. I'm like, really, Mm -hmm. really? Do you really need your phone in the bathroom? So (laughs)
0: thanks, Pat. Well, Mary, it's so interesting you mentioned that because I have consciously tried to just get away from a device for a little while because I I can't deny it. I'm, I'm tied to one as well. And mm-hmm. so I'll spend, at times, like over this weekend, I spent an hour without a device. I basically was meditating, thinking, whatever you want to call it. And it's amazing that suddenly my brain went from this Passive state of just listening or reading or doing whatever to suddenly engaging myself, you know, in thought and not just a to do list, but new ideas were coming into my mind just because I got away from the device for a little while. What What are your thoughts on that?
1: I actually have an article on that called "Get in the Shower," and the whole point is, you think of how many great ideas you get when you're in the shower, you know, because your brain is processing information that you are away from the gadgets you're away from other people and for some people that is the only solitude thinking time they get so think about how productive we are and how amazing our brains are and if we just use that time with our brain how how more powerful we could be i'm also a big fan i know some of your neurologists know this but our subconscious brains are crazy powerful and I often will give my subconscious brain a problem. All right, you think, and I will turn it over. All right, Mary, subconscious brain, you need to think about this problem, come up with something. Or I'm gonna be doing a new MGMA chapter tomorrow. And you know, have you gone through all these things? So rehearse this again in your head while you're sleeping or whatever, and use the power of your brain. And many times we don't. Our, we treat our brain like our computer screen. We have lots of open text boxes and we never close out the text boxes. And I think that's what you're referring to perhaps when you say you spent an hour without a gadget. It just gave your brain time to close some of those text boxes and focus on some other ideas and things that are important.
0: Mm-hmm, exactly. I-, I wanted to go back to your military experience. So there's, there's, for a long time, there's been this connection between the military and leadership. I, I, probably the. The first book was The Art of War, which developed Mm -hmm. military strategies, how to integrate those into the business world. What are some of your favorite books that um, helped inform you and educate you on wanting to be a leadership expert?
1: Oh, great question. And you mentioned The Art of War, of course, by Sun Tzu. Um, there's another book that took a twist on that by Stephen Pressfield called The War of Art, mm-hmm. and in that he wrote, for example, he wrote The Last of the Amazons. He writes historical fiction. He wrote the book called Gates of Fire that the movie The Three Hundred is based on. He um, he wrote the Legend of Bagger Vance, the movie with Clint right. Smith. Anyway, he wrote The War of Art, and in that he talked about how many people are oftentimes held back from what it is they're put on the planet to do, and they're held back by other people, their own, what he calls, the resistance. That we are held back by what's in our own brain, that we don't think we can accomplish as much. And as a leader, you have to get past that for some of your people. You have to help them see the possible. And in a program I was doing this weekend, one of my CEOs said, my people just come to me with problems, and I know that I'm supposed to direct them back to, hey, come to me with solutions, but they just don't have it. I said, that's right. And they can't see the possible. And your job as a leader is to help other people find their own greatness and see the possible. I was lucky enough to interview Stephen Pressfield because he's a prolific writer. And many people struggle with writing, as you know. You know, if you have to do a blog or even, you know, a paper. How many of us wrote papers the night before? Well, mm-hmm. all of us, because it was due the next day, so somehow we magically got it done. And the muse magically struck the night before that paper was due, And so I asked him about that. I said, you know, when does the muse strike you? He said he's asked that all the time. And he said, you know, the muse magically strikes at nine o'clock every morning, which is when I sit in the chair and start writing. And. And to me, that was such a disciplined answer that you can accomplish so much if you're just disciplined and focused about what it is you really want to do and you get rid of all those other distractions around you. And we as leaders, this is in um, one of the upcoming books, I use the term chaff. In the military, chaff is a distraction. Chaff is what you release from a plane um, in order to fool the missile that is locked on you to thinking that big this big chaff all these metal shavings that are like sawdust in the sky that you release the missile goes oh this is what the plane where the plane is i should explode here while you fly safely away Mm -hmm. so chaff is a distraction and as leaders getting rid of the chaff for our people is really helpful so could, when i talk about chaff to leaders i talk about the fact that many of our people are confused on our priorities that they don't they're not really clear on what it is they need to do next and then we have to get rid of the hierarchical obstacles that get in people's way many organizations well-meaning people put processes and procedures in place but the problem with those is it stops people from doing what they know they need to do. Or sometimes certain procedures make it harder, not easier for us to take care of our patients. And that's a problem. We also have to get rid of the attention deficit that is predominant throughout our society. And you know we're all walking around with everything competing for our attention and as leaders again we have to help people prioritize that as well as getting rid of the fear and frustration that goes along with pretty much every job uh, when we ask employees you know do you have do you experience any stress or fear in your job and they mostly say yes and if you ask their employers their employers would say no there's no stress around here we're great we're a big family and the employees are going Mm-mm, we're we're stressing over here so that's my my definition of chaff i would take that military word and i I break it down to an acronym. I love acronyms because you know, the military thing, and it's less for me to remember.
0: Exactly. I love what you said about distractions because being a deadline writer for 25 years or so, when I'm staring at that blank screen, suddenly the uh, dishes and laundry don't look so bad anymore. You know, you just <laughs> oh,
1: my my toilets are never cleaner than when I have a book
0: deadline. <laughs> I know what you mean. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to switch gears. Then you had mentioned talking to many of the. MGMA uh, groups, state groups over the years, when you're meeting with them, when you're meeting with other healthcare professionals, are there common questions or are there common things they want answered on leadership and management that you've uh, helped them discover?
1: I think, I think yes, um, and whether I've helped or not, you know, that that, that could be up for debate, <laughs> but I love my MDMAs, and I love my practice managers, and I'll tell you why, and it's not just because this happens to be an MGMA podcast, but my practice managers are the people who make things happen. When we go to hospitals or doctors or clinics, we are, we, the patients, are vulnerable, we are scared, we are not at our best. I'm always, I always feel terrible when I meet a new doctor, and maybe it's, I don't get sick very often, but maybe that's the one time I've got the flu or a cold. And, you know, I'm just this hideous, swollen, snotty mess. And I walk out like, hello, I'm very sick. <laughs> and I always look at these people and go, dear God, you know, these people see people like me all the time, bless their heart, you know, and they still seem to be happy to see me. Who who does that? To me, it's the most amazing thing ever. And my practice managers are the bridge between patient care, the physicians, the PAs, the nurse practitioners, whoever, and the patients. And they have to make everything work, which means they are being squeezed on all sides. They're being squeezed by the docs, by the insurance companies, by the regulations, by their staff, by the patients. Everybody squeezes my practice managers. So they have to be responsive to everybody, understand what everybody's job is, know how to do things, be masters of delegation, be terrific at feedback, stay calm, stay motivated, stay inspiring, and meanwhile, make sure the physicians are signing the reports they need to do, do the follow-up, keep the staff on track, smile at patients, make phone calls. They do it all, and and any little thing that I think we can help them with is magic, so I really strive to help them decrease stress, get out of the office sooner, make uh, certain jobs that nobody wants to think about, providing feedback to an employee or helping reprioritize. Done the wrong way, now you've got a mad employee who's gonna you know, speak about you to everybody else and complain and the problem doesn't get better. And the reality is sometimes we have to lean into that conflict and we don't wanna do that. Well, how do you do that? To have that conversation, so that the employee, instead of getting mad, gets motivated.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a
1: whole different other thing.
0: Yeah, you had mentioned earlier about um, people not owning up to uh, naughty behavior, as mm-hmm. as we were talking about, and you were just talking about. Well, sometimes there are these difficult conversations, and I would think anybody who's who's run a, a medical practice has certainly had those situations where they have to deal with difficult conversations. So Mm -hmm. what's your advice then on leaning in and and just really taking control of that situation and and trying to diffuse it?
1: So many times we want to diffuse the situation much like we want to quiet down the puppy who's barking at the front door. So the doorbell rings and if we've got, um, you know, uh, like a pit bull, and the, the pit bull is a puppy and it's woof wolf, you know, and it's running to the front door and barking and barking, and barking. We know we have to train that pit bull. So we put a leash on the dog. We make it sit nicely. We give it a treat. And then we open the door when it, once everybody's calmed down and we ask the person at the door to please give the dog a treat so everybody's calm. We unsnap the leash. Everybody walks away calm and happy. That does not happen. In the small dog Chihuahua world, and so for my Chihuahua people, I'm not trying to pick on your dog, but you know this is true: when the dog, when the Chihuahua runs the door, I am one barks.
0: of those people, by the way. Yeah, uh huh. Yeah, exactly. So we
1: talked, and um, so you know your your dog. What's your Chihuahua's name, Daniel?
0: I have two, Smokey and Bandit. We're huge yeah, Burt Reynolds fans. So, uh. mm-hmm.
1: yeah. So Smokey and Bandit run to the door, and they bark and they shiver and and snarl. And instead of putting a leash on Smokey and Bandit because they're so little and so cute. What we want to do is we just want the noise and the chaos to stop so what do we do daniel we lean over and you know what we do we pick them up and we say there there little smoky and Bandit, daddy not gonna let that mean mary at the door get my puppy <laughs> and we pet them and meanwhile we are reinforcing the bad behavior because now they're snarling and barking and we've reinforced it so <laughs> And you know this is
0: true. Um, I'm laughing at myself. Yeah.
1: <laughs> because we just want the chaos and the noise to stop now. And especially in practice manager situations, we oftentimes are dealing in extreme situations. We're in, we're in crises all the day, all, all day long. So we, have, we sometimes just want the noise and the chaos to stop. So we put a Band-Aid on the sucking chest wound and we hope that it gets better on its own. It will not. So that bad behavior, when you continue to condone the bad behavior or reward the bad behavior, it does not get better. It gets worse. And not only does it get worse for that person, but it gets worse for the people around that person because people realize, well, gosh, I'm doing all the right things and I'm not getting rewarded. You know, they're the ones who are making all the noise happen and they're getting rewarded. Wait a second. And in this way, this is what I'm seeing a lot of, that my my top talent they're getting really irritated because, sorry, I've got a dog that's doing some
0: barking.
1: <laughs> that, might, that when you treat your top talent the same way that you treat your bottom talent, you're going to lose both, and you should. And this is where people say, well, you know, I'm just placating my top talent. Sorry, is that bark? Do we need to redo that?
0: No, that's, considering okay. what we were talking about, I think that's perfect to leave it yeah. in.
1: <laughs> yeah, so um, apparently um, I've got a... Um, the, there's a FedEx truck that pulled up and my dogs are desperately trying to um you know, guard me from the FedEx truck. Oh
0: good and then the doorbell rings. You can go so get I'm, that. I'm, I'm holler
1: at my dogs. Um, girls, come here. Good girls. Good girls. Good girls. Good Classic. Good girls. Thank you for guarding and taking and making sure the FedEx truck doesn't do something bad now. Stop. So anyway, um In the workplace, if you treat your top talent the same way you treat your bottom talent, you are going to lose both, and you should lose your top talent because of that. If you treat your top talent like the bottom talent, you pay them the same, you reward them the same, then they're gonna leave you because they look at that bottom talent that's getting away with things, and they're like, wait a second, I want those people on the bottom held accountable. I want those people to have to do their job better. I'm tired of covering for them. I'm tired of doing their job for them. I'm tired of the boss doing their job for them. And I'm you know, out here busting my tail, trying to help our patients and help our docs. And they're just cruising. So your top talent is waiting for you to hold other people accountable. But again, we get really busy at work and we don't. So when you don't hold people accountable and when you don't let people know when they're doing the right thing or the wrong thing, and that doesn't have to be in a mean way. And that's what a lot of my leaders get confused about. They're like, well, I have to correct somebody like a dog. Well, you know, hopefully you've trained your dog better, you know, that you you focus on positive reinforcement you say, you know, hey, Sarah, hey, you know, Bob, I know you love working on this. Uh, this patient issue right now, but this is what I really need you to do right now. And you have to constantly give people direction and gentle tweaks and gentle feedback. And in the same way, you got to let them know when they did it right. Hey, great job handling, you know, Mrs. Jones, who's really having a rough day, or, you know, Mr. Smith, who's, you know, he's been here a lot, and uh, I know he loves to talk to you, and you just handle him so well. We have to let people know when they're doing things right, as well as sort of redirecting them when they're not doing exactly what we want them to do at that right time.
0: Okay. Last week we were talking and you, you provide a number of different topics that you cover. And so I asked you last week, I said, what's something good for the healthcare community? What do you talk to those MGMA crowds about? And one of the items you said was change management. So I wanted to dig into that a little bit now. First, if you don't mind, just give us your definition of what change management is and then really what that means to the healthcare professionals.
1: So I think when you have to manage change, some of the change that you want to implement is easy because you're the one championing it. You're like, this is a great idea. We want to do this. Let's do this. Well, change management when you don't want to do it, that's where real leadership comes in. So for example, uh, many of my healthcare people would say, um, and I would agree, I don't think any industry, as an industry, has had as many changes as the healthcare world has in the last 10 years. So starting with ICD-10s and macron and all that, uh, the the regulatory processes have not made our lives easy. And many of our many of our teams have really struggled with this. Um, many of my practice managers were really frustrated with, you know, just say ICD-10, that some of their people would, instead of learning the new codes because you know there's a lot of new ones they would just say hey do you happen to know what the code is for this Or do you happen to know what i put here or what do i do here and instead of telling them you know you answer it the first time and then the second time you say did you write it down when i told you before and then they ask you the third time you say you're going to have to look that up because if we if we as leaders and managers um don't let part of that is holding people accountable for knowing what they need to do to do their job but also it's your job to make sure they are able to do their job and that means making sure they have the knowledge to do it and in many cases our status quo visionaries our status quo workers are those people who do not want to learn anything new they don't want to learn any new software they don't want to learn any new systems they don't want to learn any new insurance filing And we've had all of those things. So they may be great assets to other people around them, they may be great with patients, but they also have to be great at doing those things that they were hired to do, even though the job has changed. So when you are a leader, a practice manager, a lot of your job is leading change that you don't necessarily like. And that's what makes it a leadership issue. So change management, we all go through the J curve of change, which is, a certain amount of resistance to what's going to happen, you know, resistance and and denial, and then active pushing back. And then people start to delve into the exploration phase, and then they get into the commitment phase. And many people took years to do this. And especially in healthcare, we'll say, okay, we're going to all have to do this by this date. But then that date slides, and what that teaches people is We're not really serious about our deadlines. And if you were one of those people who did this in the beginning, you're actually penalized because now we've changed everything anyway. So it's been a very challenging time for practice managers, I think, as a whole. And the medical field continues to evolve and change. And things that we did five years ago, you don't do it that way anymore. So practice managers constantly have to be looking at the next change and figuring out ways to not just implement it, but get their teams on board to embrace it. And that's actually pretty tough.
0: Mm-hmm. In your research, have you studied why our brains are resistant to change?
1: Yes. So it's interesting that we have, we have a part of our brain that actively resists change. And it's... Um, when we, when we look at this, it's called the habenular nuclei in our brain, and it, it, um, it pushes back against something new. Now, even people who like things new, they like, say, trying something new at a restaurant. But when you think about shifting their habit for the day, many people don't like that. Um, we are creatures of habit. Habits keep us alive. So we're very protective of those habits that work for us. And in those situations, um, it's why, frankly, I liked wearing a uniform. Uh, I was in, I went to Catholic school, so I wore a uniform through 12th grade and then I just kept wearing a uniform for the next <laughs> 25 years. I mean, it was easy. I didn't have to worry about what to wear every day. And it does decrease, your. Dis- you don't, that's like one extra decision a day you don't have to make, which is why, you know, Steve Jobs, black turtlenecks, um, Mark Zuckerberg with the gray hoodies. Those are decisions that, they figured out, you know, I don't have to make those decisions every day. That's a change I don't have to make. Uh, Many of my very successful leaders eat exactly the same thing for breakfast every single day because it's a habit and they don't have to think about it. Now, because of that, because we're hardwired to push back against change as a protective mechanism, what's interesting to me is that once people get into that exploration phase and you break down the obstacles of what gets them to that next level, their brains actually get stimulated by the idea of change, that we are, once we stop pushing against it, we're fairly quick to adapt, which is an encouraging thing if you're trying to lead change.
0: Now, do you have any, a real world example, you've, you've talked a lot about working with healthcare professionals and practice administrators, any kind of a real Uh, you know a case study real life story where they've dealt with change management and and succeeded there
1: i i have a lot and if i said them some of them might be embarrassed if i um, mention them on your podcast um so let me give you a navy example okay i was um i'd already done 25 years and the navy decided this is 2008 you know we're still at war we've got one hundred eighty seven thousand troops deployed at war really big decisions have to be happening in the Pentagon and Navy brass decides they're going to make a change that is going to spread throughout the entire Navy. And clearly this is going to be so much better for all of us. I say with all sarcasm and they wanted every single Navy person to buy a new Navy PT outfit. So twice a year we all go outside and we have to run a mile and a half and do a bunch of pushups, do a bunch of sit-ups. We get tested on these things and then the score goes into our performance evaluation, which sounds kind of ridiculous. And it kind of is. But now they wanted us to buy a $49 t-shirt and pair of shorts that did not stretch so that we could now perform this, what some people thought was a fairly useless um, exercise in exercise. Um, And now we all want to look the same while we do it. We're definitely taking a page from the army. Well, at that point in my life, I had now been doing this for a long time and I did not like clothes that did not stretch. And I said, this is stupid and I'm not going to do it now. That's denial. That is the denial phase of change. And then they said, well, you kind of have to do it because your next PT test is coming up and everybody has to do it. I'm like, I'm not going to do it. And you can't make me. Well, it turns, and I'm a commander for Pete's sakes. I've been in command. turns out the Navy actually can sort of make you. So I showed up to this thing and I did not have the required uniform in. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to retire. I'll just show you I'll retire. Now this sounds like a pretty uh, ridiculous thing to retire over, and if you thought that, you would be right. So this goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning. Is this an excuse or a reason? Well, it's absolutely an excuse. I didn't want to do it, but apparently I was kind of ready to think about retiring anyway. And so I did my last PT test. I never bothered to get that new uniform that I was going to wear you know, one time for 12 minutes and be done with it. And this is just an example of a change that We sometimes, as leaders, think is not going to have far reaching consequences, but I actually thought about it. And I was a grown up thinking about it. I'd grown up in terms of being a a fairly responsible leader in the organization. And we sometimes make decisions and we think, oh, people get on board with this. I never got on board with it. And I left the organization. Now, was I ready to leave the organization? I probably was. but that's just a, a kind of an example of sometimes we make change for change sake because we think we have to show that we're moving forward. I see a lot of businesses do this with rebranding or new logos. We're going to go from purple and green to orange and blue. Okay, is that really going to make a difference? We sometimes as leaders have to figure out what change is meaningful and what change is not. So in the medical world, obviously, if it's regulated and mandated, we have to do it. It's how you present it to your people, is, I think, the leaders the leaders challenge.
0: Right. Um, our audience, as you know, you've you've interacted and worked with them before. They love tools, takeaways, blueprints, checklists, anything like that. We, in, in fact, our podcast got a. Uh, A note today from one of our avid listeners, Sula, she wrote in and said, hey, we'd love to get some, you know, takeaways from from your podcast. So as you're thinking about this change management and leadership, what is is there a a, a takeaway or a checklist or something like that that you could share with us?
1: Lots. And thank you for asking, Daniel. I, my MGMA audiences know that I love to share my five-minute plans with everybody. So the five-minute plans are part of, there's about 75 of them, of business and leadership success templates. I'm a big fan that we do not need to reinvent the wheel, and if somebody else has already thought about it, why should we redo it? And I have for your listening audience today, I have not only, uh, I think about 12 of the five-minute plans, and I think it focuses on focus, teamwork, employee engagement, appreciation, gratitude, the business plan, the vision plan. and a few others, as well as the workbook that goes with the Why Leaders Fail book. You can use it as a standalone. And that is all available to your listeners. I rent space on Kiwi Live. So it's www.kiwi, like the fruit, K-I-W-I, live.com. And the keyword, of course, is, well, dog. And when you go there, it's going to, and many of my MGMA people have heard that before, but the resources constantly change depending Mm -hmm. upon the audience I'm working with at the time. So the resources I have in there right now will be good um, into January. So that's great for your listening audience. And they can go in there and uh, right click on the plans they like and the worksheets they like. And there's some other articles on change management and just my productivity sheets, the system I use to help people get things out of their head and get them in a place where they can be managed and led instead of, you know, all of those crazy thoughts that, that keep us awake at night. So KiwiLive.com, keyword dog, there's about 10, um, maybe 12 plans in there for your, for your group. And um, if somebody is listening and they're like, well, I've got this challenge right now. Um, I would like to just encourage them to send me an email or, you know, go to my website, it's ProductiveLeaders.com or send me an email, Mary at ProductiveLeaders.com. I am the one who answers that. And you can just say, Hey, I'm an MGMA in you know Florida. And this is a challenge. Do you have a solution with 75 plans out there? I may have a solution or if I don't, it might give me an idea to make a new one.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, before we sign off then, any final thoughts you'd want to share with us on leadership and, and how people can you know, improve their daily life in their medical practices?
1: So, I just want to share with my medical practice managers that what you do is hard and if it was easy, everybody would do it, but not everybody can do this job. And Practice managers generally got into this business because they truly, honestly want to help people. And I just need your practice managers to know that they really are truly, honestly helping people out there. They're helping their docs. They're helping their staff. They're helping the patients. They're helping the insurance companies. They're helping providers and suppliers. I mean, so many people rely on practice managers to do their jobs because otherwise the medical world kind of falls apart without them. So, yay you.
0: Mary Kelly, author, speaker, and CEO of Productive Leaders, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for letting me be there and um, have a great rest of the season and hope to talk to you soon, Daniel, thank you.
0: Well, that's gonna do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Mary Kelly. Remember, you can access Mary's five-minute plans at kiwilive.com, keyword dog. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. We love hearing from listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com or find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.